Welcome to Madam's Hoes and Gigolos, a podcast about the history of sex work and the historical events surrounding sexual revolutions. I'm your host, Heather, and with me is my friend, Dr. J. Hi, Heather. Hi, Dr. J. So don't worry, guys. Connor and I had a conflict in schedules, so Connor's being the team player, and he gave me some equipment and said record with a friend, and he will be back next episode. I'm also going to take this opportunity so he can't stop me to talk about seriously how amazing he is and the gratitude I cannot express enough. He does such an amazing job editing these podcasts and putting in the effort to put everything together. And there's been many times where we've had episodes where I felt just defeated and I didn't feel like it was going to be as great as it's become, but he does the magical editing and I don't know if he's going to edit this out, but I feel like I need to express my gratitude and, you know, I'm and how happy I am he's on the team. So anyways, Connor, when you hear this, when you edit this episode, thank you for being so great to us. But anyways, back to Dr. J. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So tell me your credentials and tell me, tell me about yourself. Then we can dive into this topic. So I am a licensed clinical psychologist in the state of California. Which means you will be more than qualified to discuss this topic with us. (laughs) Let's hope so. Um, My degree is in clinical forensic psychology, which actually um, is... So forensic psychology, a lot of people think it's like CSI, but it's actually not. It is the intersection between psychology and the law and the legal system. So in my graduate school training, I was very fortunate because I had all of the clinical psychology classes as well as the forensic psychology classes. It's pretty cool. Wow. I mean, that sounds very in-depth and and thorough. And I mean, I never would have known that those two would have even intersect, but... Again. Lucky for me, they did. Right. And you have the student loans to prove it. 100%. <laughs> so today we're going to be discussing hybristophilia. Dr. J, can you explain <laughs> what that is? Well, before I explain what that is, I think we have to talk a little bit about what a paraphilia is. Please. So a paraphilia involves sexual arousal to some sort of unusual stimuli. So, for example, our Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, version 5, has eight things listed in it that you can be diagnosed with. They are voyeuristic disorder. And that's? When you are sexually aroused by observing an unsuspecting person who's naked. So, peeping toms, for example. Okay, that's what popped into my head. Yes. Exhibitionistic disorder when you are sexually aroused by getting naked yourself in public. So running around with a trench coat when you're naked underneath and opening it up and flashing people. Okay. Frauderistic disorder. When you are sexually aroused by rubbing up against somebody who is non-consenting. So uh, on a subway, a train, a bus, usually something like that. Okay. Sexual masochism disorder. I feel like this list is getting creepier and creepier (laughs) and creepier. Yeah, I can see that. Okay, so the next two, sexual masochism and sexual sadism, kind of go hand in hand. Okay. Because there is a subset of the kink community, BDSM, where there are 
legal adults engaging in consensual acts. And absolutely nothing wrong with that. As long as they are SSC, safe, sane, and consensual, and everybody is of legal age, go nuts. Do your thing. (laughs) So I just want to make it clear we are not about the kink shaming. No, we are not about kink shaming at all, as long as it's SSC, like Dr. J has said. And you are of legal age. I want to be clear. (laughs) Yes. We don't need no Jeffrey Epstein's anymore lurking around here. So sexual masochism is when you are sexually aroused by being humiliated, beaten, bound, um, or having pain inflicted upon you. Sexual sadism is when you are sexually aroused by being the one who inflicts the pain upon others. We'll talk a little bit more about that one, I think, a little later. Pedophilic disorder, which I think probably sounds familiar to a lot of people, but when somebody is a pedophile, they are sexually aroused by prepubescent children. Prepubescent. Correct. So there's another name. Adolescent. Correct. So this is a lesser known word, I would say, because I don't hear it often. I've heard it a couple times um, when listening to like true crime podcasts, things like that. But in a febophile is somebody who is sexually aroused by a post pubescent, but still under the age of legal consent. So would it be person. safe to assume that Jeffrey Epstein is in a febophile? Yes. Yes. Okay. And to be clear, I'm not diagnosing anyone, and I cannot diagnose anyone (laughs) from a podcast. True. And I mean, (laughs) he's dead now anyway, so it doesn't even matter. Fair. (laughs) But still. And then there's fetishistic disorder, which is sexual arousal from the use of non-living objects or a highly specific focus on non-genital body parts. However, I want to be clear. I think this is another one where people misunderstand. You hear the phrase foot fetish often. Right. If you're into feet, you have a foot partialism, not a foot fetish. So if it is a part of the body, we call it partialism. So when someone says that, oh, I'm an ass man or I'm a breast man, is that a... Partialism? Yes. Not necessarily. No, because typically partialism has to do with non-genital parts of the body or the parts of the body that are typically not involved in sexual play. I have had a, an experience where I know a man or I've had relations with a man who liked to sniff my armpit. Is that? So here's the thing. Our lovely diagnostic and statistical manual is on its fifth version. In the fifth version, there are eight paraphilias that a person can be diagnosed with. I believe when all the doctors got together and discussed what they wanted to include in this version, they went with the eight most prevalent ones, you know, where they see in the most clinical contexts. However, having done my own research, if you can think of something, there's a paraphilia for it. So yes, there is a paraphilia related to becoming sexually aroused by sniffing an armpit and or other bodily odors. I mean, it doesn't bother me. I just, yeah. I'm just glad that I have a decent deodorant. <laughs> and, you know, I also want to say that to be diagnosed with a paraphilia 
Number one, it has to be listed in our Diagnostic and Statistical Manual or the DSM, and you have to meet the minimum criteria listed. Well, I highly doubt armpit sniffing would be in your DSM. It is not. (laughs) Well, it's not listed, but we do have kind of a workaround if, you know, it is something that is really causing distress and or interfering with like someone's daily functioning. So if your armpit sniffer was, you know, not able to live his life in a fulfilling way and was potentially invading upon others, we could diagnose with an other specified paraphilic disorder or an unspecified paraphilic disorder. So it just, you know, we've got something for everyone. Okay. Well, he always asks his permission first. So I don't think he's going to go any further than somebody who just likes the fresh, clean smell of my armpits. Fantastic. I I can appreciate that. Do your thing. So bringing us to our topic, hybristophilia. Hybristophilia. It is an atypical, pervasive sexual arousal around the committing of crimes, not in yourself, but in other people. So if you are sexually aroused by somebody who commits heinous acts, rape, murder, armed robbery, etc., you could potentially be a hybristophiliac. This is also called the Bonnie and Clyde syndrome. Correct. But, you know, there's speculation that Bonnie and Clyde weren't even a couple. That's what you tell me. My experience is that they were. Right. And with my research... I find that Clyde was gay, and in that time, it was illegal to be gay. It was considered sodomy, so he was never openly out, and Bonnie had syphilis. But I've even gone down the rabbit hole and pulled their coroner's reports to see if this was true. Did Bonnie have an STI? But, you know, I don't think they focused on her STI as much as they focused on the bullet hole that killed her but i did read that the whole relationship thing was the storyline they created warner brothers created for the movie and then it just stuck and created that romanticized bonnie and clyde theory we're gonna be together that you know we've seen what it's us against the world us against the world (laughs) beyonce and jay-z you know eminem i believe had it I watched Love After Lockup, and there was John and oh, Christiana. Yeah. Absolutely. Who, and he, he loved having Bonnie and Clyde written on the back of his truck. I mean, he <laughs> even had a picture of Bonnie and Clyde on their death car before they were massacred or killed. I don't know what the appropriate word would be. Ambushed. Ambushed. Ambush would be the appropriate word, word. Next to his cereal container hanging on the wall. He also had the stickers on the back of two cars. Yes. No, you're right. It was multiple cars. Yeah. He also had multiple movie serial killer paraphernalia in his living room. Oh, yeah. Like the Jason mask and the Freddy nails. To be considered someone with hybristophilia, you have to be sexually aroused by the act of of somebody committing a crime or the fantasy of them committing a crime. Okay, so Harley Quinn and the Joker. Yes. And every time I call you Dr. J... (laughs) I think of this one time when I was at a party and there was a girl dressed up as Harley Quinn and her husband was the Joker. And she like remained in character all night and was just like, Mr. J, Mr. J. And every time I call you Dr. J, 
her voice from like five years ago is still screeching in my head because she was just so loud. (laughs) Well, I hope that number one, I'm not that loud. No, you're very soothing. (laughs) And number two, I won't slip my ethical boundaries the way that she did when she was the treating psychiatrist of the Joker. Touche, touche. So would you say that Harley Quinn, even though she's a cartoon comic book character, could possibly fall under the hybristophiliac category? I would would say potentially, yeah. So what if these people are just more, I can fix them, I can love them better. You know how people feel like they can change somebody or maybe if they're missing something, like they... And they think, oh, I can fix it in this person. And that person is filling a void of maybe maternal issues or paternal issues. I was going to say, as somebody with daddy issues, I'm not looking to reach out to men in prison to fulfill that. The underlying cause of paraphilias in general is really unknown. You know, I like to look at things through a biopsychosocial lens, Ooh, big word. Yes, very big word. Meaning that potentially there are biological or genetic factors, psychological factors, and then social or environmental factors. Environmental? Yeah. Like in the area they grew up around. Okay. I could see where that would make sense. To go back to hybristophilia, there are two types, according to psychology today, passive and aggressive. Okay, so what is passive hybristophilia? A passive hybristophiliac is an individual who really has no desire to participate in the criminal activity. Rather, they are sexually attracted to those who commit crimes. So there's usually some kind of delusion where, number one, they can convince themselves that whatever their potential partner did was not that bad. So they can make excuses for whatever crimes have been committed, they will think that they are special, that they are the one person in this world who can influence the criminal and their potential partner would never hurt them, would never kill them, would never do to them what they've done to other people or other victims. They can potentially change this person. They can rescue them from whatever demons they're battling. A passive hybristophiliac has a tendency to put themselves in the position to be seduced, manipulated, lied to by the person they've fallen for. And how do you think they do that? Like, is that writing letters to them? Is that being friends with them first? I mean, I guess it wouldn't be being friends with them before they go to jail or arrested. Right. Because if you are a hybristophiliac and are sexually aroused by people who commit crimes, you're not going to be friends with somebody just for the potential that that might happen. Right. So it's a more sure thing to write to somebody who has been convicted. And has nothing but time to, exactly. but to write back. Exactly. Okay. Interesting to know. The second type of hybristophilia is aggressive hybristophilia. That is when you actively commit crimes with your partner. So like Mickey and Mallory or Mr. J and Harley Quinn. Correct. They don't have to be the ones to inflict the pain, but they have to be involved in some way. So Cameron Hooker was a man who was a sexual sadist. And he would abduct 
young females in the 70s, early 80s. And his wife, Janice, was actively involved in helping lure their victims. You know, during the age of hitchhiking, they would drive around, try to find somebody that he was into. And the young women who were hitchhiking would potentially feel safer getting into their car because it was just a young, seemingly harmless couple. So do you think that this is a type of aggressive hyperstophilia or a type of folie à deux? Should we define folie à deux for You listeners? are the expert with the student <laughs> loans to prove it. I do. <laughs> you please have that discussion because when you told me what this was, I thought it was a type of melted cheese you dip crackers in. I mean, that certainly sounds better. Oh, it sounds so good. Um, so folie à deux is... French for what is seen as a shared psychosis or delusion. So typically there's a dominant partner and a more submissive partner. The submissive partner is vulnerable enough to fall under the spell of the dominant partner. So to answer your question, it could be that, it could be both. Okay. So much specificity, I know. There is. It's like, okay, well, do they have this or do they have that? And if they have this, they're not that. And it's just so many. It can be both. Yeah. So many things. So they would fall under both. Is there an example of a couple that would just fall under the folia do? Well, I think potentially a couple couples. (laughs) And, you know, I want to be clear. I don't know for sure, right? I have not met these people. Some of them are dead now. I have not, you know, I cannot diagnose them. One example potentially could be Ian Brady and Myra Hindley of the UK. They're the Moors murderers. Tell me more. Tell me more. So Ian Brady (laughs) was a psychopath who abducted and killed multiple children and young adults in the UK. And his girlfriend, Myra Hindley, helped him. How did she help him? Do we know? Myra would help Ian lure their victims. In fact, their first victim was a young woman that she knew. And so their victim willingly got into the car to help with what Myra asked her to help with. That bitch. Yeah. (gasps) And just to be clear, like from my understanding, from the research I've done, Ian is the one who did the actual killings. But Myra was a 100% willing participant. She basically used herself as bait. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so we have passive hyperstophilia, we have aggressive hyperstophilia, we have folie à deux, which is not a melted cheese. Correct, unfortunately. So is there anything? Well, I think it's important to note that hyperstophilia is unique for a few reasons. Number one, there's not a lot of research on it. There's a little bit, tiny little bit. Which is probably why this topic is so interesting. I would think so, yeah. It should be noted, too, that hybristophilia is fairly different from the other paraphilias that are in the diagnostic manual because research shows that overall men are more likely to have a paraphilia than women. But with hybristophilia, more women have it than men. Interesting. Are there any reports of men falling in love with a woman murderer? Why, yes, there are, Heather. What? (laughs) There's a case in the UK, again, of a female serial killer, actually fairly recently in like 2014, 2013-ish. Oh, wow. um, Joanne Dennehy. She killed three men 
over the course of two weeks and involved three living men as accomplices after the fact. And they were incredibly taken with her. She's been diagnosed as somebody with antisocial personality disorder. So you often heard the word psychopath. Yes. Okay. So psychopathy is not in our diagnostic manual. Why is that? Because it's not a diagnosis. <laughs> so somebody who has antisocial personality disorder has all of the things that you would associate potentially with somebody who commits crimes, commits severe crimes. Lack of remorse, lack of empathy, somebody who's kind of superficially charming and glib. There's really no concern for potential consequences. Like they understand the difference between right and wrong, but they just don't care. So... Somebody with antisocial personality disorder only would potentially be a politician, potentially be the CEO of corporation. I refuse to accept this narrative about <laughs> Bernie Sanders, though. I <laughs> no, refuse it. I would never. I would never. <laughs> I refuse to accept that narrative. So where antisocial personality disorder kind of veers off is when we combine it with the paraphilia of sexual sadism where somebody has all of the things that make them antisocial. So the lack of remorse, the lack of empathy, um, et cetera, but they're also sexually aroused by inflicting pain on others. So all psychopaths have antisocial personality disorder, but not everyone with antisocial personality disorder is a psychopath. So when we think about somebody who's a psychopath, we think about all the ones that we all know, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, et cetera. So Joanne Dennehy is considered to be a psychopath. She was superficially charming. She was able to convince men in her life to be accomplices to murder after the fact. Yeah, there is your answer. It is rare, but it happens. So what about Gypsy Rose Blanchard? So as we know, she and her partner killed her mom. But here's the thing. When we think about Gypsy Rose in particular, I feel like this is a separate case because she had, for her entire life, trauma. And I don't know that we can get too much into trauma, but I don't know that I would classify her in the same category. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't classify her as a psychopath. I no, do think no, 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 no. I wouldn't even classify her as a violent murderer. Correct. But, I mean, she, she is, clearly. But um, she is a woman in jail and she is also engaged. But would you consider that a form? I guess we couldn't call it anything. I'm not sure what it is, to be honest. You know, it, it's hard when you know so much about a person, as we know about her. Um, right. From all of the information that's out there about what she had to endure. Right. I feel like she was a victim of her circumstances. Yes. I mean, did she have to kill her mom? Probably not. But what is the way out? How do you escape your abuser? Right. So I think that that, you know, she's in a different category than the other ones we've talked about. Right. And I was trying to differentiate like, OK, so there are some women, but there are some women of circumstances that make them do what they want to do. But how about we talk about the women who are turned on by the psychopath, like you've mentioned, where we have Ted Bundy. Right. Or we have Jeffrey Dahmer. Richard Ramirez. Richard Ramirez. Do you know how many times when that whole Richard Ramirez documentary came out, I saw people fetishizing Richard Ramirez? Like, I know he's a murderer, but he's hot, right? 
And it's like, have you not seen the mugshot? Like, have you not listened to the documentary? And people talked to how disgusting he was. Have you not looked at his teeth before he got new ones while he was in jail? Well, as we talked about, there's a paraphilia for everything, <laughs> whether or not it's diagnosable. I mean, would Richard Ramirez jailhouse makeover be one? Would it make the list of the over 500 paraphilias there are? Richard Ramirez. Probably. I mean, clearly it did, right? Clearly. He had groupies. Right. Clearly. I mean, even in his death in modern times with the documentary, women are writing on social media. So, like, he's hot, right? Yes, they are. So since we bring up Richard Ramirez, let's just go ahead and talk about him. 13 murders, 5 attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults but he ended up marrying one of his admirers while he was in prison. Not surprising. Right. Sorry, ladies who were fetishizing him. He married somebody before he died. He ended up marrying a freelance magazine editor, Doreen Leoy, who had begun correspondence with him shortly after his arrest. But the most disturbing story has to be the one of Cindy Hayden, the Night Stalker admirer who was on his jury. Hayden brought Ramirez a plate full of cupcakes with the message, I love you, on top. His juror. Hayden's love for Ramirez wasn't enough to get him off, though. So she was trying to get him off so she could, what, potentially be with him? I mean, why not, right? I mean, yeah, he just (laughs) murdered a bunch of people in the middle of the night and put all of California into this frenzy. frenzy. That's a good word. I mean, I remember it happening. You remember. She visited Ramirez in jail, told him she loved him, and even brought her parents along to meet the man she was convinced was her soulmate. And he didn't even marry her. He didn't even marry her. She tried to get him off. She baked him cupcakes. She introduced her parents to him through glass. So would that be considered something? Potentially, yes. I just am kind of flabbergasted that she was allowed to remain on the jury. Yeah, because she brought him cupcakes. But that would have led to a mistrial. Yeah, that's not okay. But let me add, he's not the only murderer that had a juror corresponding with him, even after the fact. Okay, so who else? Scott Peterson. So he's on death row right now at San Quentin, I believe. Yes. And he is in for murdering his wife and unborn son, Lacey Peterson. After his murder conviction, he started writing letters back and forth with one of his jurors. Weird, right? Looks like she's making an excuse here in that she said she hoped he would confess to the killings in his letters. So by hoping he confessed, does, is this making her feel like what you were explaining before, that they're different and... Yeah, I mean, it seems like it would potentially fit into the passive hybristophilia category. Okay. But it's hard to say because I don't know if she was necessarily romantically interested and maybe she was trying to and then realized because she did say after 17 letters she noticed he was detached from the case and maybe it wasn't going the way she had thought and this is all speculation but why would you write him in the first place without knowing what was in her letters it's hard to say But, you know, even taking the amount of time it would take to write 17 letters. I mean, listen, he got convicted. So she convicted him with the rest of the jurors. Right. And we applaud her for that. 
Yes, 100%. I almost wonder if there should be some type of legislation where if you are on a jury, you cannot, after the fact, cannot write this person. You cannot correspond with them. Because I just feel like, and I guess my emotions don't really matter. I just feel like these, how many people are on a jury? 12? 12. I thought I thought it was 12. I've never done jury doing. I don't know. I, I don't even want to jinx myself and say how. <laughs> Do you know how badly I want to do jury duty? <laughs> what? <laughs> Every time I get called, I go and I wait and I never get called. Yeah, but you would probably get jury duty for like some kind of they would, stupid they traffic would kick ticket. Me. No, they'd kick me off. They wouldn't let me. They wouldn't put me on a jury. Because you're too smart? Mm, just because I am a psychologist. and Right. Yeah. Exactly. You're too smart. Mm. And you have the student loans to prove it. I do have the student loans to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So... Well, you know, I think there's a difference, too, that we have to consider between somebody like Scott Peter Peterson and, like, Eric and Lyle Menendez, right? Because the, the three of them only committed one or two murders each. Scott with Lacey and Connor, their unborn son, and then Lyle and Eric with both their parents. Right. Right. There's a difference there between them and somebody like Richard Ramirez, Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, et cetera, who were legit serial killers and murdered multiple people. And with the Menendez brothers, there has been reports of trauma attached to their reason as to why. Correct. I mean, obviously, it's just speculation. I mean, we don't know. Yeah. We know, we know what they said. We, we know do. they've been convicted regardless does that mean they were rightfully convicted? Uh, un- unclear. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the times are, were just different back then, too. Yeah. But bringing it back to Eric and Lyle, Lyle's been married twice. Since he's been in prison. Which has been a long time. Yeah. He married former model Anna Erickson, who divorced him after she found out he was writing to another woman. And then to magazine editor Rebecca Sneed, who has since become an attorney. Has she attempted to interfere or intervene in his case? I don't know anything about that. <laughs> but it, it just, a magazine editor, and Richard Ramirez also wrote some, with you know, and mm-hmm. now she's become an attorney. So these are women with drive, and these are women who, who essentially would, would know better. You know, look, I don't begrudge people who they love, right? Right. Unless, and this is a big unless, it is illegal or (laughs) non-consensual. Which is really a standard we all should live by. I think so. I think so. Okay, so we talked about Lyle. Eric has had a more of a stable married life while in prison. In 1999, Eric married his pen pal, Tammy Sockoman, in the Folsom Prison waiting room. Tammy has a self-published memoir called They Said We Never Make It, My Life with Eric Menendez, which is the basis of a 2010 A&E documentary called Mrs. Menendez. So, I mean, these are some smart women. Absolutely. When we think about the people who are in prison for committing crimes, we also have to think about the risk of whether they would commit further crimes if and when they were released. And there's a whole long list of factors that go into risk assessment for potential recidivism or whether or not they'll commit another crime. 
But I just, you know, I feel a little differently about Scott Peterson and the Menendez brothers than I do about career criminals, I guess I would say. Oh, because they've only done it that one time? Right. Do you think it's the career criminals were able to get away with it? And these two people just had one intended target. They were real bad at it? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. You know, I, I honestly don't know. You know, I could see it being easier to convince yourself that the person you were writing to in prison was safe if they'd committed one crime as opposed to multiple ones, maybe. Okay. I don't know. Let's talk about these career criminals, though, that you're talking about, like Ted Bundy. Mm Mm-hmm. Jeffrey Dahmer. Yep. We already discussed Richard Ramirez. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk about Ted Bundy. Okay. Probably the most infamous one on the list. One of them, yes. I mean, what was his crimes? As in, I am not a true crime aficionado. (laughs) So Ted Bundy admitted to killing 30 women. It is unclear whether or not it was only 30 women. There's speculation that it was more, but we only know about 30. When he was on trial, groupies swarmed the courtroom. He ended up marrying Carol Ann Boone, who was a twice-divorced mother of two, who had dated him before his initial arrest. So she knew him. Yep, she knew him. So she smuggled cash to Bundy to help fund a 1977 escape, or his infamous 1977 escape from prison. And then she also married him in a courtroom in February 1980 during the penalty phase of his trial in Florida. She gave birth to a daughter in 1982 and named Ted Bundy as the father. So (laughs) many women wrote Bundy letters while he was in prison, but only one woman named Janet actually managed to creep him out. Imagine creeping out. Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy. (laughs) He responded to her only once, and Janet reacted like it was a profound religious experience, writing back to him, quote, I got the letter you sent me and read it again. I kissed it all over and held it to me. I don't mind telling you I am crying. I just don't see how I can stand it anymore. I love you so very much, Ted, unquote. So apparently Janet started showing up at his trials, so much so that it made Bundy feel nervous. He wrote a letter to his wife, Carol, and told her to stop letting Janet sit near her so that he wouldn't have to look at her. Wow. Wow, Janet. Wow. Wow, Janet. Okay, so it's been rumored that Bundy has this mystique about him and that he was actually in a relationship with one of his attorneys. Do you know anything about that? I mean, I've heard the rumors. I I don't know if there's any concrete proof, but one of his attorneys was definitely linked to him romantically towards the latter end of his prison term before he was executed. Even more so than his wife. The rumors are that his wife stopped talking to him towards the end. You know, and again, speculation, I don't know for sure. But Right. I feel like at this point between now and the time of there, a lot of speculation has occurred, you know, and... Okay, so even Jeffrey Dahmer had a lot of groupies, even though he was a gay man. But his groupies were women. Right. So Jeffrey Dahmer raped, murdered, and dismembered 17 boys. Boys, men. Men. They were young, young men. And often would eat them. Yep. And for some reason... He was popular with the ladies, and in 1993 alone, his admirers sent him 
$12,000 to help him buy things in prison. Now, would this be some kind of hyperstophilia or is this trying to befriend somebody who's essentially infamous? Not for good reasons, but right. well, I so, guess that's the definition of infamous. <laughs> I think you have to go back to what was the motivation behind the contact, right? Because if we think about what we talked about at the very beginning of this episode, to have a paraphilia, there has to be sexual arousal involved. So, you know, if they're writing just for romance, that's not the same thing as if they're fantasizing about him committing his crimes. So putting $12,000 on his books collectively could just be like... Bad judgment? Yeah. Yeah. Waste of money? Sure. It just depends on, you know, the motivation behind it. That's interesting. So do you know any instances of aggressive hyperstophilia or like Veronica Compton? Is she aggressive? Is she passive? Unclear. (laughs) So Veronica Compton was a woman who was so obsessed with Kenneth Bianchi, one of the Hillside Stranglers, that she wrote a play about it called The Mutilated Cutter. And she sent it to him, hoping to catch his eye. She also sent him some suggestive photographs. But above and beyond that, she decided that she was going to try to commit a copycat murder to convince the police that the killer was still at large and that he was wrongly convicted. She smuggled Bianchi's semen out of jail in a plastic glove. And she had plans to murder a woman and plant his semen on her body to make it look like the DNA tests had misidentified Bianchi. Compton, though, however, was not a very effective killer. Her victim got away, called the police, and she ended up behind bars. So she's an interesting one because if you think about it, right, her motivation was to get him out of prison. So we can't say, like, you know, if her scheme had worked and she had gotten him released, you know, what role would she play in his life after that? But then... The tables turn because now that she was the prisoner, then yep. she started getting men writing to her, right? Mm-hmm. So do you know anything about Once Veronica Compton was convicted and went to prison, she got love letters of her own, particularly from a man named James Wallace, who started writing to her when she was in prison and then ended up leaving his wife of 37 years for her. Leaving... His wife of 37 years for a woman. Who attempted to murder another woman. To be with another murderer. A serial killer, yes. A serial killer. Yeah, it's a web. It is a web. web. And you would would think, like, (laughs) listening and, and seeing this web, like, there can't be all lights on. You would think, right? Again, hard to say, right? Like, we are blinded by things that we don't want to see. Right. And we don't know the intentions. You know, are they going with the pure intentions of, I can love them and I can fix them? Or are they going because they are sexually aroused by the fact that these people have done these heinous things? Right. And they fantasize about that. And really, you know, they will only fall under the category of hybristophilia if there is sexual arousal involved. Okay, well... I feel like we've covered everything. It's nice to have like a knowledgeable and and the the 
the knowledge of somebody who is <laughs> who is very well aware who and owes the federal government more money than she'll ever make in her life yes exactly you're yeah. welcome exactly yeah <laughs> you know i remember like when i was in my 20s and like the cool flex was knowing the security guard at the club so you didn't have to wait in line or knowing the bartender so you didn't have to buy beers but now i'm in my I'm in my 40s and I feel like the flex is now like I have professional friends <laughs> that I can call and say, hey, can you help me? Because I have a scheduling conflict with my with my co-host and I want somebody who actually has the knowledge to discuss the subject. Heather, it was my pleasure. I love talking about this stuff. Well, I love talking with you. So as you know, because you listen, as with every episode we suggest a charity for donation and as our guest i'd like to hand over the privilege what charity shall we shout out put in our show notes <laughs> um so when i was doing my pre-doctoral internship through children's hospital los angeles i spent a lot of my time at a drop-in center for homeless and precariously housed youth ages 12 to 24 in hollywood called my friend's place and their tagline is assisting and inspiring homeless youth to build self-sufficient lives. They are an amazing, amazing place. They provide food, clothing, showers, case management, mental health services to kiddos who are unfortunately living, you know, on the streets. And I would love for them to be your charity for this episode. We will certainly have them as our charity and for being our guest. Whatever listeners donate, we will match. Don't worry, Connor. I've got this. <laughs> and if you donate to this charity, we will put you in a drawing for some merch because we're working on merch. I just like to quality control it. But because this is special to Dr. J, we want to celebrate it and we want to acknowledge it. So if you donate, we'll put you in a drawing for some merch and we will match any donations and the link will be in their show notes. I hope you liked this episode. Thank you for doing this with us, Dr. J. Thank you for inviting me. I don't think I can ever refer to you to anything else besides Dr. J. <laughs> and it has to be in that Harlequin accent. It, it absolutely does. If you like what you hear, don't forget to hit subscribe, give us a five-star review, and share us with your friends and follow us on Instagram at Madams Hoes and Gigolos. That's Madams Hoes. H-E-A-U-X-S and gigolos. Thank you for listening.